Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Ashling Murphy's community prepare for her funeral tomorrow and we get the latest as the Gardaí issue an updated appeal for information. Minister for Foreign Affairs Simon Coveney orders an investigation into a mid-lockdown celebratory get-together in his own department. A pandemic of loneliness for many of our older citizens who still live in fear of the virus. And in the first in our weekly series on personal finances, we take a look at health insurance. Is it about time you made the switch? We'd like to hear from you. You can get in touch with your questions and comments on Twitter using the hashtag TonightVMTV. I'd like to go to Virgin Media News correspondent Zara King, who's just outside Tullamore for us tonight, where she's been speaking to Sinead Hubble, head of news with Midlands 103 Radio, as the community prepares for the funeral of Ashling Murphy tomorrow morning. Well, Claire, tonight the community in Mount Bolas is still working through the evening to ensure that everything is perfect for tomorrow morning for the funeral of Ashling Murphy. Uh, throughout the day, we've seen them out sweeping the roads and power hosing. They're determined to do their local girl proud tomorrow. Tonight, I'm now joined by Sinead Hubble, who is head of news at Midlands 103 Radio. Uh, Sinead, thank you so much for joining us. I suppose, how are the community feeling tonight on the eve of Ashling Murphy's funeral? I suppose a dark cloud is hanging over the community here in Mount Bolas. Indeed, the entire county of Offaly. People are still in shock. A lot of people still don't know what to say after Ashling's death last Wednesday. And I suppose we know that uh, there's been such a huge response to this, Sinead. I mean, it reaches far beyond even this parish out into the country and around the world. We're told today that's been a huge comfort to the community. Yep, so many people have come out over the last few days. Large vigils were held across the world, New York, London, Australia, for Ashling to remember her. 5,000 people gathered in Tullamore Town Park on Friday evening for a very emotional vigil where candles and dozens and dozens of floral, uh, floral tributes were left for Ashling. And we just touched on it there. It was amazing to see today the sense of community spirit. Like these people are determined to do her proud tomorrow. I mean, even as we speak tonight, they're still in the community centre working away and making sure that everything is in place for the morning. Yeah, lots of locals here have been trying to do their, their bit to give Ashling the send off that she deserves, whether it's parking cars in a field, making sandwiches, looking after everybody who's been working so hard over the last few days. And speaking of food, you had a story at Midlands 103 today about, I suppose, the people have been bringing food to the family home over the last couple of days. Yeah, I suppose this really shows the calibre of the Murphy family that even in their darkest days, they're thinking of others. They have received so much food from family and friends and donations that they contacted the Ken Smullen Food Appeal and donated a large quantity of food. So 15 families in Leash, Offaly and Westmeath have all benefited from that. An incredible 
thing for the family to do, particularly in their own uh, moment of grief. Uh, just p- pause for a moment there, Sinead. Uh, earlier today, we were speaking with Paddy Buckley from uh, Ballyboy Coltis. Of course, uh, music going to play a key part in this funeral service tomorrow. But uh, Paddy talking about the grief that they've been experiencing over the last couple of days. Uh, it's just indescribable, shattering. Obviously, the, no, nobody, nothing could prepare us for this, this thing. And uh, there's no words to describe it. We've tried it. We've been talking about it for the last five days, and we're just repeating ourselves. The only thing we hope we have is to share the grief with the family. We're privileged to live in a small community where the GAA and the Cotis, all the groups, are part and parcel of the. You know, we all share grief together, we all work together, and it's a great community thing. And I, I think the families, the letter and the Murphy families, you know, really appreciate the help that everyone's given. Well, tonight, Gardaí have made a further appeal for information. Sinead, what can you tell us about that? So Gardaí are appealing for information about a man who was wearing a black tracksuit top with no hood on it, black tracksuit bottoms with white writing or stripes along the side of it and black runners. They're asking anybody who may have seen him in the Tullamore area or who may have given him a lift to get in contact with them. Finally, Sinead, tonight, I suppose, how do you think the community will cope beyond this point? Tomorrow, tomorrow is going to be a very difficult day. Where do they go from here? It's going to be incredibly emotional for everybody tomorrow, but I suppose the community spirit that we have seen over the last couple of days and I suppose the solidarity that the entire country, entire world has shown to the Murphy family will help them get through it. Okay, Sinead Hubble from Midlands 103. Thank you so much for joining us this evening on The Tonight Show. Uh, So Claire, we've been hearing from Gardaí this evening just about uh, the plans for tomorrow. The funeral cortege will leave the Murphy family home at half past 10 in the morning uh, before arriving here at St. Bridges in Mount Bolas for uh, 11 o'clock. Gardaí appealing to people planning to attend the funeral. They know there's going to be a huge crowd here to follow the traffic restrictions being put in place. That was Sarah King coming to us from Mount Bolas in County Offaly tonight. Well, in studio to discuss this and more is former minister and author Shane Ross, journalist Valerie Cox and group head of news at the Irish Independent, Kevin Doyle. Um, Kevin, I just want to come to you first, just on that updated Gartha appeal, um, as well as the information um, they gave out, that appeal looking for information on a man wearing a black tracksuit with a distinctive white stripe on the bottoms and, and more information around that. They've also asked people to stop sharing messages on social media around this case. Yeah, and even though they didn't name it, I think they particularly mean on WhatsApp because uh, it has been a big feature of this investigation over the last few days that there have been, we know there was a lot of messages around the initial uh, suspect that Gardy had in custody. There have been more uh, and indeed CCTV footage or images circulating of, of the second suspect as well. So um, quite a strongly worded statement in that sense that they said it's dangerous, it's unhelpful to their investigation and they've basically appealed to people to just stop that when you get the message, just resist the urge to forward it on to whatever group uh, that you might feel. Yeah, and we know um, ahead of this funeral tomorrow, um, the teachers' unions have come out. There will be, this, this will be marked right around the country in schools up and down the country, Kevin. Yeah, and I think, look, we saw that with the vigils that took place on Friday and over the weekend. I think the 11 o'clock minute of silence that's going to take place in schools, Ashley was a school teacher, so obviously that's particularly personal. But I think there'll be a lot of workplaces. Um, there'll be a lot of people in their own homes that will just stop tomorrow for a moment because the grief that that family is going through and even as you saw with Zara, the community and, and my home county in Offaly, what people are going through down there, it's something they never thought they, they could experience and, and it's very different, difficult to process and I think it does help that they know that all of Ireland 
is on their side as such. Mm-hmm. Um, Valerie, we're all expressing our sympathy with Ashley Murphy's family. As Kevin said, um, she is to the forefront of our minds. But you say with this, we need to promise to implement change. We do. I mean, it's not enough to express our sympathy with the Murphy family and to have candles and flowers and vigils. They're all very wonderful this week. And I think it's great for the family to have that solidarity. But, you know, we have to get over this lack of respect for women. And we've heard so many examples this week right across the media of how women feel in society, how they're treated in society and the fear. And things are not going to change unless we can instill this respect. And this is not going to happen until women are treated as equals. I mean, I'm not going to go into a big long list, but there's so many examples. The lack of women in the houses, the Oireachtas and the senior level in all walks of life. Women also, they're subjected to many warnings. And I mean, I've done this myself very recently. I bought my daughter's run and I went and bought them very strong alarms. And then I just thought it's unacceptable that I have to do that, that they have to carry alarms just to get on with their own lives. And do they carry those alarms when they're out and about running? Yeah, I mean, they've got more careful, actually, because they wouldn't go running in the dark now, whereas previously they might have done that. Um, Not just now, but I mean, over the last while. But I was quite impressed with a piece in the Sunday Independent this week from Nisha Dolan, because I thought she summed it up when she said, the media make conditional a right that should be inviolable. So it's not a question of someone only going for a run or being a most valued member of society. Violence against any woman is wrong. And we're used to this language of blame and shame. You say, you know, we've often heard, she asked for it. She was out late at night. What was she doing in that place at night? She was in a dodgy area. But none of that matters. None of that takes away her right to live without the threat of violence or intimidation. And Valerie, on that wider point of gender-based violence and national awareness around it, um, how do you think it's changed over the generations? Uh, Do you think we're more aware of it now? This is a problem that has always existed. Um, was, Was it talked about less? Was it accepted more as this is just the way things were, um, you know, over the decades, would you say? I think there was an element of shame um, a couple, up to a couple, up to a decade ago, maybe. I mean, I remember one instant when I was a teenager and I was walking down O'Connell Street and a man, I didn't even notice him, he was coming in the opposite direction and he got his hand and just put it into my crotch as I passed. And I nearly died from the shock. But you know what? I didn't go home and tell my parents. Because I think they'd probably, I was a young teenager, and they'd probably have said to me, what were you doing? How did it happen? I felt I was to blame for it, which of course is absolutely ridiculous. But it's a long time ago, and I was very young. But I mean, things like that were happening back then. There was another incident where I was on a bus as a teenager, and somebody in the seat behind started putting their hand up my jumper. And I was very brave. I stood up and I slapped him across the face and he got off the bus. So, I mean, all of that was happening. I think there isn't a woman who, alive today, who'd give you, who couldn't give you a story of something that had happened to her at some stage. So talk about this being um, a watershed moment or certainly the conversations that have come about as a result of last week's awful tragedy. Do you think this is a watershed moment? I do. Um, You know, you can just feel it. We have, yes, the outpouring of grief, but people are asking so many questions and saying, where do we go next? And the one thing I would say is, though, 
I'm concerned about young men who may feel that they're getting bad press this week because there is a bit of a generalisation going on. And yes, we need to educate men, but we, need, we must never forget that the vast majority of men are decent people. I mean, we've had lots of interviews with women this week. Um, but we need to get all men on side to bring about change. And I think we're just at that point now where we've got the teachers, the politicians, everybody wants change. And yeah, I, I think it could happen. Um, Shane Ross, you can certainly hear and see this demand for change in, in the outpouring of grief and also anger um, that's been seen right around the country. Uh, politically in terms of a response, and we've heard calls for it today, that it's spread across different departments in terms of you know, responsibility for domestic, sexual and gender-based violence. Should there be a ministry that will, that will take all of this on board under one ministry in order to effect change? Would if, you say there, uh, would you agree that not enough has been done to date? Yeah, of course. I think everybody's in agreement with that now and from what they've seen in the last few days and the outpouring of outrage and grief and the contributions from women in particular to what needs to be done, the reforms that are necessary. I, I don't know about one ministry or not. I, I, I just should say one thing. I, I, I think I took encouragement from Helen McEntee's reaction to this. I think she, we're probably lucky that we have a woman in justice at this particular moment who actually grabbed this issue and expressed women's fears and women's difficulties and we, women's terror. And I think she realises that it's not just a matter of the items which you mentioned one by one or anything like that. What she was talking about and what I think is correct and I think what Valerie was referring to is, as well is that a whole atmosphere has to change. You can introduce all the legislation you like, but it won't necessarily remove the kind of terror which women feel uh, when, when they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. So that's what's really got to be done. And I think there, there is hope that we have actually seen a watershed moment just from the reaction we've seen and by the reaction from politicians. But we'll have to see tomorrow's going to be a, a terrible day, uh, but afterwards the action's going to have to come. Yeah, um, and people will be, be waiting to see what will happen there and the strategy that has been mm. promised from government to address um, some of these issues. Uh, I want to talk about the Simon Coveney Department of Foreign Affairs and the, the champagne party that occurred back in June of 2020. Uh, so cast your mind back, we were at level four in terms of restrictions then. Uh, the country was in a semi-lockdown, but there were celebrations taking place in a government department. Uh, Kevin Doyle, on this, the controversy around this gathering is certainly gathering pace now. Uh, a lot of it on foot of the investigation that appears to be taking place though uh, it hasn't, it was, it was very slow to confirm that this investigation was happening and within the minister's own department. Yes, it must be a top secret investigation and Shane knows how top secret anything in government is, but it seemed to go get launched and uh, Minister Coveney and indeed Minister Radcliffe both managed to come out to take public questions on it and neither of them managed to tell us that there was an investigation taking place, which What's is going incredibly on odd. Well, to be honest, Claire, the, I actually have a view of this, which is, that the event itself needs to be explained and there needs to be uh, apologies and all the rest of it that seems sincere because I'm not sure we've got a sincere apology for it yet. Um, and then maybe we move on from the event. But what's actually happened here, and look, any teenager who's ever had a, a, 
house party while their parents were away knows that the real danger is if you don't clean up afterwards. And what's happened here is that a party took place ages ago. Nobody really noticed about it. Went under the radar. Came out over Christmas, in the depth of Christmas. The first statement that came out from the Department of Foreign Affairs didn't even say sorry. It explained it away, went, ah, that was ages ago, don't worry about it. Um, we, we've learned lessons. What lessons did you learn, lads? Uh, uh, not to have parties? I don't know. Uh, and, and on from there it rolled, because then we were told Simon Coveney was, oh, he was nowhere near it, but then it turned out that he was actually back in the department later and spoke to them, but he didn't see any bottles of moe lying around, which, by the way, must have been lying around because it was an impromptu party, which means that, no, that they weren't gone out and bought especially for this occasion. They must have just been lying around in the Department of Foreign Affairs. So I think the real problem here is the fact that they have now taken a story that came out at Christmas we're in the middle of January and they're still drip feeding explanations and parts of what happened here. Yeah, and on this uh, particular investigation, it's going to be an investigation, Shane Ross, carried out by the Department of Foreign Affairs into the conduct of people at the Department of Foreign Affairs. Is that right? Apparently, according to the reports this morning, the Secretary General of the Department of Foreign Affairs has been asked to investigate it. And he's going to be... It's, it's quite incredible and I think... The, the formation of it is quite un unacceptable. This is not going to be an independent inquiry. He's going to investigate a, something that happened where the minister was present, his boss. So he's going to be investigating and reporting to his boss, where the last secretary general, who he obviously would know quite well, w was present as well, and all sorts of senior, senior civil servants were there at the same time. I happen to know him, so I say that Joseph Hackett, because I met him when I was a minister many times. He's a very, very good person, but he's been put in an extraordinarily invidious position, where he's going to be asked to report to his minister on himself and the behaviour of the party of his predecessor, who he'll know very well. This is not a credible investigation at all. It's not meant to be. So what's likely to be the outcome here? You know, we've learned lessons we, we, from it. No, we, don't it know what his terms of, we don't know what his terms of reference are even yet, and I doubt if he's actually got any. I mean, this is a complete and utter shambles, and what it looks to me like is that the Department of Foreign Affairs, which has always been a, a somewhat elite layer of the civil service, held this party impromptu, thought that the normal rules didn't apply to it, did nothing about it. The minister came in, knew about it. He didn't call in the Secretary General the next day and say, look, give me a report on that. That shouldn't have happened. 18 months later, he's coming, he's coming, coming out and saying, well, we better get a report on it at this stage. It's just incredible. So what should happen? I think they should have an independent called in who should report to the Taoiseach, not to the Minister of Foreign Affairs, on what happened. OK, that's, that's resources, that's money. Do you think it's money wisely spent, the public need answers on this? Absolutely, because, because there are completely and utterly different penalties being imposed for offences against COVID. Look what happened to people in Golfgate. I don't know why, who got what penalty. Some people got yeah. away scot-free. Well, that is he, the subject, as we know, uh, of legal proceedings at yes. the moment, so we won't okay. be there. But I'm talking to the ones which have gone through already. Some people got, got away. And in this particular case, it appears that civil servants get a rap on the knuckles and two of them got promoted. Two of them are actually ambassadors. Right. Uh, Valerie, uh, one, one rule for some and uh, everyone else oh, have to, to stick by the lockdown. Totally, Claire. I mean, as Kevin said, it was level four lockdown. They weren't wearing masks. They had a few handy bottles of champagne. But what I wonder is, you know, whether this is going to do Simon Coveney any damage. Is it going to wreck his eventual leadership ambitions? I don't know. I mean, he came out of the Catherine Zappone episode fairly unscathed and he is a very 
popular minister. So I think we have to watch this space and see, you know, in the public eye, Despite is this going to change? Despite a couple of outings at, at the, the, the Committee for Foreign Affairs Absolutely. When, he was put, when he was put through the ringer and uh, mm. had to go back on himself a couple of times. So that's the question, you know, will he be appearing he again mm. and how he should respond to this? Absolutely. And, you know, um, is public opinion going to change towards him? And what about the party? I mean, Shane could probably tell us more about that even. You know, how is, has the party reacted to this? The ordinary people who are, you know, running around getting votes. Are things yeah, going I to think, change there? I think that the, Simon is very popular amongst the grassroots of the party. He's probably the most, most popular in the vote. He got more than, than Leo on that. He's not so popular in the parliamentary party. I think he's damaged, certainly. It's, it's very difficult to, in a situation like this, because he was such a good minister with, on, in Brexit and in terms of Anglo-Irish affairs and all those, all those areas. But he's now, he's now slipped up in an extraordinary way. And, and there seems to be a presumption, I think, amongst some ministers who've been there too long, uh, that, that, that somehow the rules don't apply to them after they've been there for a long time. They get the kind of trappings of power go to their, go to their heads. And I think that's particularly true in the case of Department of Foreign Affairs. Uh, what, what, what's likely to happen now in this case, uh, Kevin Doyle, because the, the committee has to decide whether they want to call Minister Simon Coveney before to answer questions. Yeah, and I imagine they ultimately will. There will obviously be some scepticism among the Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil members of that committee as, as the coalition partners in government. But I think ultimately uh, they won't want to be seen to be brushing it away because that will then drag the members of that committee uh, to being questioned about why on earth they don't think this is worth asking the questions about. So I think we will see Simon Coveney. Most likely he will probably argue that they should complete Joe Hackett's investigation first and that then he can come with the full facts. But to be honest there, I, I know they have an end of the month, which is a reasonably quick time for any investigation to turn around. But it seems really simple to me. The, the people who were there are all in the photograph. Um, who bought the champagne, lads? Did an email go round about it? How did it happen? You could do it in an afternoon if you really wanted to. And was it on expenses? <laughs> well, they've said it's not. They said, <laughs> but we don't know who, who paid for it at the same time. So mm. to be honest, Claire, they could let you in there for the afternoon, put them all down in front of you for, for 20 minutes each, and I think you'd have the answers. Would, would we? This is the question. <laughs> Your interrogation <laughs> skills are well known. Uh, no. uh, well, uh, we'll have to see actually what happens because that's also the opportunity to kick the can down the road further on it, isn't it? Um, just on the other matter around restrictions and, and pressure growing really to ease the restrictions and the closing time that's in place uh, and to lift those restrictions, is there going to be a move from government on this before the end of the month? I, I think... I think they'll certainly lift a, a good chunk of them at the end of the month in terms of hospitality and closing times, those kind of cinemas and, and the things that have had to close early. I think you'll start to see them start open. The bigger question might be around crowds at sports and things like that. You have the Six Nations coming up, you have the GA back in a small way, but it's going to gather momentum uh, as we get on into March and so on. So um, I think you'll see decent moves sooner rather than later, actually, Claire, to be honest on it. I think there's a, a want in government now to see this start to move on. And we've seen that people are less concerned even in the last few days about figures and numbers. And we're not as obsessed. People aren't watching the numbers in the way that they were every evening I think, again. I think it's also because they're looking at what numbers are, are in hospital and in particular what numbers are, are in our ICU and thankfully um, as a result of this particular wave they are, are relatively low. Uh, well that's all we have time for on that. My thanks to Kevin Doyle. Shane Ross and Valerie Cox will be staying with us coming up after the break. The impact of the pandemic on our elderly. Stay with us.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome back. It's been a very difficult time for many of the older members of our society as fear of infection and restrictions have led to some being completely isolated from their community and loved ones. With growing optimism now at the possibility of getting back to normal, what impact has the past two years had and how can we ensure that people can get back to living their lives? Well, former Minister and author Shane Ross and journalist Valerie Cox are still with me and I'm also joined by consultant physician in geriatric and stroke medicine and in Tala Hospital, Professor Ronan Collins. Well, earlier we spoke to people in Douglas and County Cork and we asked them what they had missed most over the course of this pandemic. Just the isolation. The isolation of not being able to meet friends and family, you know? Travel to family as such. You know, it's something we have to live, we get on with and live with it because it's not going to be anytime soon as such. Just getting out in the boat and meeting people. You know, getting back to a more normal way of life. You know, being able to go to a show, go to a theatre, go for a meal. I suppose I've missed the freedom of going to see my mum, who lives in the west of Ireland on her own. Uh, of just living, you know, day-to-day -day living and not having to second-guess and second-think everything. I think the main thing I'm missing is just being able to do things at the drop of a hat. That you can just go for a cup of coffee. If I met you for a cup of coffee and I hadn't seen you for ages, just, that's, I think, normality. My panel is still here with me. Um, I want to come to you first, Dr. Ronan Collins. When you look at that, people are missing out on an awful lot and have been over the past couple of years. It's been especially um, the case for older people who, for at the, at the very start, have been cocooning. And since then, there have been fears over their health and catching COVID, the fear of catching COVID. Uh, what impact do you think it's had on, on uh, older members of our society? And where do you think we're at now? Well, I think when, if you ask older people themselves and when they reflect on this, you'll probably find great wisdom um, and insight into the past two years and probably a lot of resilience as well. There's no doubt that the pandemic has been toughest on older people. I mean, one in five older people have lost uh, a first degree relative. So that's the first thing. Uh, there will be the trauma of loss. Uh, and then in addition to that, there's the direct health impacts. Uh, many older people, as you said, will have suffered most from the infection and, of course, will have been deconditioned by the illness themselves. So they will probably have suffered most in terms of personal loss and will probably have suffered most as well in that they were the sicker people who got COVID and when they've come through it, they will have suffered the deconditioning and the long-term effects of that. And then there was the experience of the pandemic, as you said, that much-hated word, cocooning. 
And I think many older people will have felt the effects of ageism um, on them and the way they were treated at the start of the pandemic, not being involved in the discussion themselves, not having their advocates, but they themselves as the primary advocates have been involved in the best way to approach this. And it's as if the whole of society actually forgot uh, that older people have a lot of life experience. I mean, I'm just about old enough to remember maybe the last uh, outbreak of polio in Cork uh, and queuing around the dispensary in Kinsale with a degree of panic to get vaccinated. But of course, my parents uh, would have lived through not only that, uh, but also the flu outbreaks of 1958 and 1969, uh, would have also lived through the TB crisis of this country. So it's not that as if older people don't have learned life experience and resilience or how to cope with the threat of infection. Uh, so that we will draw strength from that. But I suppose I will all summer the real experience of older people during this, of course, is that you know, the instance of depression doubled, uh, the instance of loneliness was as high as 40 percent, and the instance of decreased mobility, decreased in cognition, vary between 15 percent up to 25 percent, falls occurring in about 20 percent. So there were real physical effects as well to the cocooning and the isolation. Uh, but I do think that many people will uh, show, older people show a lot of resilience through this uh, and on reflection will feel that, yeah, we came through it, uh, but we've experienced a lot of loss and also maybe that society could have approached this better and involved us more from the start in the conversation. Yeah, there's been many milestones missed for people, Valerie, hasn't there? Yeah, um, totally. You know, we talk about, like, there are two Christmases have gone by where people may, maybe haven't seen loved ones for one yeah. reason or another, have had to isolate, and we've had this now huge surge in cases which has led to people isolating even more. Yeah. Uh, and, and missing big things. Yeah, missing big things. I mean, First Communions, baptisms, new grandchildren, not being able to see them. Many people didn't go home to their families for Christmas because they were worried that when they had to come back, they had to isolate and they had to take tests and all the rest of it. So even those who could have gone home maybe didn't. But I think what the whole thing has done it has shown us the weakness in our society in terms of supporting older people. And I'm thinking particularly of older people who wish to remain in their own homes, as most do. And our government is an absolute disgrace in terms of providing that support. I was talking to some people from Sage Advocacy as well, and they were saying, you know, even the language around COVID damaged the way that we think of older people. They were treated like children children who needed minding, and they were congratulating the community for singing in their gardens. I mean, that's all positive, but again, it's not for everyone. And what we really needed was to ask older people, what do you want? How do you want the pandemic, pandemic to be handled? How, what sort of support do you need for this? And instead, as you said, Ronan, they were told cocoon. Now, only moths cocoon. I mean, that is just so insulting. And these are people who are being characterised as weak, helpless, unable to make decisions and at the mercy of the community. And in reality, these are people who have their own businesses, who had jobs, who were rearing grandchildren, looking after one another. And suddenly, with the language we used and the type of reporting, we put them, we made them diminutive little people who had no mind of their own, 
no autonomy. I mean, we stripped them of their autonomy. Do you think, do you think um, Shane Ross, that that's, that's in part how we will look back in, on this pandemic, how we treated older members of society in a bid to be seen as protectors in this? We actually left older people out of the conversation. I think cocooning was a disaster. Even the very word is kind of slightly pejorative. You know, you're cocooning, keeping away from, you're hiding, you're keeping away from everybody else. Uh, and I think these, was, were, these decisions were made in the name of public health. They were made in the name of public health, but they were made in a very, very clumsy, generalised way. And I think older people were almost regarded as a nuisance as a result of this. You know, they were kind of herded in a, in a way which was rather insulting. And the idea that they were made prisoners in their own house without any, any uh, kind of leeway at all, which was very convenient to administer because it was very simple, but it was very, very insulting to the to the older people who, who were affected by this, who felt that they had a large contribution to make. I think, you know, the main problem for older people was not just the incidents of, 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 of tragedy which happened to them, which were just awful. You know, they, they, you mentioned the Christmases they met, met, but they lived for a certain amount of a period of time because of ignorance, because of our, everybody's ignorance, in fear, and they were, they were frightened of dying. Were, well, that fear this, was a very real fear as awful. well. It was awful. And it was a rightful fear. And they were, they were short of information during that whole period. I'm not blaming anybody for that at all. I don't think that would be fair. It's easy to blame people in this. But they were short of information. They didn't know whether if they went out the door into the shop, they'd get it and die the next day. They were in that sort of a situation because of the lack of information about COVID. And they felt helpless. And younger people didn't feel that as much. Younger people had... A, had particularly in their teens and later, had a, a huge price to pay in this pandemic. And we shouldn't forget that yeah. as well, because they lost a couple of years of their I want, lives. I want to just um, bring you some, this Amoric survey, it takes place on a weekly basis. Um, the Department of Health brings it out. And just, just to look at people's uh, thoughts and feelings around the pandemic and where we're at now, one of the questions contained in that survey of last week was, do you feel that the worst of the coronavirus crisis in Ireland is... Um, behind us, said 36%, happening now, said 34%, and ahead of us, said 15%. Now, plenty of people may have been surprised at the results of that survey, um, and certainly it points to a sense of fear um, rolling on about where we are now, and maybe fear that elderly people feel right now about what's happening, because case numbers are high. We probably know many more people who've, who've got COVID in recent weeks. Um, do you think that's why there is that current fear? Because by all rights, when you see the outcomes and the case numbers um, that will end up in hospital and seriously ill, the fact that there's a booster around, we shouldn't really be feeling this way now, should we? Well, it, it, of course, it depends on how it's portrayed in the media. And I think if you show your know, 20,000 cases every day, that's going to frighten people. Uh, because the recent experience of this has been, you know, as I said, one in five older people have lost a direct uh, first degree relative to COVID. You know, and in fact, I've lost friends myself to COVID. So in reality, when you've that type of experience, if you then put 20,000 case numbers up on the screen, I mean, what do you expect the, re the result might be? And we know from the TILDA research, for example, that people are more likely to be fearful for this if they're over 70, if they're female, if they're living alone, if they're living in rural Ireland. Um, and so they are a constituency that may be expressing some of this fear, but I presume that this survey is done in a very balanced way. Uh, but I think, for example, the case numbers, it needs to be interpreted properly. These are positive swabs. A lot of these people have no symptoms at all and would not have been known at all except for swabbing them. 
Similarly with the hospitalizations in this wave, many of the hospitalizations, as I'm sure has been aired many times on different shows, are because we're swabbing everybody coming into the hospital and we're picking up a lot of people who are in with the normal things that people come to hospital with who have turned out to be COVID positive as well. But and so just to, to reiterate, with this particular wave, we do know this. Of course the government are right. It's grand for me to come out as an individual and say the war is over. I don't have the responsibility of the whole health service to gamble with. And, and there's a point to be made about that separately as older people shortly, uh, as Valerie was alluding to. But we are now beginning to see that with this infection, you are 50% less likely to be hospitalised than you would have been with Delta and with Beta. We also know if you've been doubly vaccinated, you're 65% less likely. And if you've had your booster, you're 83% less likely to be hospitalised. So that doesn't mean that there will be individual people who won't get severely ill or who may even die with the infection. But what I would say to older people is that once you've had your three vaccines, you're as protected as you can be. You're pretty strongly protected. You do still have to make some judgment calls, but it's very important you get back out and you enjoy your life and you live your life to the fullest. We can't hide away from the threat of infection all the time. For example, will we behave like this next year when there's a flu outbreak? Have we ever behaved like this when there's been a flu outbreak? I, I, I'm but, not trivialising I mean, this. Exactly. No, but I mean, I'm not. We do know that they're I'm not, not the same thing. I'm not trivialising this in the same way as flu, but what I am saying to you is that the principles, for example, once you're vaccinated against any illness, and you're, va you're as yep. protected as you can be. Uh, Valerie, what would you think of all that in terms of our mindsets, uh, and especially for older people who, you know, we, we are acknowledging um, this fear and the, the, the idea, the caution that's around uh, many people who you know, maybe unsure about how they get back to what's perceived to be a new normal. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that's making it more difficult is the fact that we've created this climate of fear among older people. And of course, older people do have more medical problems. And one third um, didn't, um, they had, um, they were delayed medical care for conditions they already had where they're waiting to go and operate for an operation or something. One third of over 60s is very high. And the good thing is, as Ronan mentioned there, the Tilda report and also um, the WHO, they've another report as well. And they've itemised all the things that happened to older people. And, you know, all the usual things like the loneliness, depression, no exercise, stress, the delayed medical care. But I think one of the saddest things, and it, it's going to take us a long time to come to terms with it, is forcing people to die on their own. Some of them didn't even get palliative care, which they would have got under normal circumstances. But, you know, asking people to die on their own, um, I don't know what the final figures were. I mean, obviously, some people died from COVID, some died from other causes, and their relatives watching them through the windows. Um, there have been suggestions in some of these reports that that could have been handled better, maybe the use of gardens, something like that. Mm. And I think there's a huge problem now with rehabilitating our nursing home residents and trying to get them back to some sort of normal living and to gain their trust again and make them realise that they can get on with their lives. You know, we've, we've got all the vaccinations now. It, that's going to be difficult. Sure. Um, someone has tweeted to say, thanks to government actions, we have one of the lowest cumulative COVID death rates in Europe, half that of the UK rate. So that is something to be said for the public health um, decisions that have been made during the course of this pa pandemic. Um, not
notwithstanding that, I mean, we're seeing simple, you know, we are seeing cancellations and delays to mm -hmm. procedures um, <coughs> that are affecting older people right now. Would you like to see really that things get back on track in our hospitals? Well, of course, I, I'd absolutely be delighted if they did, because obviously there are people who've got very serious diseases and problems who are, who are suffering and are, and are, going to, are going to suffer more as a result of this. I think we, we want to be a little careful this, this week. I'm just listening to the conversation here and reading the news today that we're assuming that we're into a new period and it's, it's all over. There's a, a bit of optimism expressed in this particular survey as well. People saying, you know, that, that uh, they think it, we're coming towards an end. We've, our problem has been, I think, in the past has, has not been the, uh, the vaccinations, which have been particularly good and that's been a great... It's that we've, gone, we've, we've eased up too early. And we've eased up too early on nearly every occasion and we've suffered for it. And we don't seem to have learned that lesson. We're hearing from politicians, people who make the decisions again this week, optimism, which we want to hear, but we want it to be based on something. We don't want the euphoria and people jumping the gun and saying, you know, we're going to, we're going to lift the restrictions again on the 31st of January and have to go back once more to the unexpected. Well, I would agree with that to a point. Uh, I do think we have figures that show that we've got grounds to believe that we can have some optimism here at this stage. And I do think that's important to get that message across. You're far, far less likely now to get seriously ill once you've had okay. your three dosages. I think one of the questions we do need to ask, though, is that why do we need three dosages? Uh, and that is one of the questions I'm, I'm curious myself about. One to put to some of the immunologists who come on the show maybe well, next Well, we have there. plenty of them yeah. on the show, uh, exactly. always, willing, always willing to talk through the science of it all. But we do know that, thankfully, uh, the numbers in our hospitals and in our intensive care units as a result of this particular wave um, are very low, um, if any. Now, if you have been affected by any of the issues that have been raised in this discussion, our contact helplines can be seen on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash helplines. That's among those, um, of course, who are vaccinated. But we will leave it there for now. My Thanks to Shane, Valerie and Ronan. Coming up after the break, feel like you've been paying far too much for your health insurance. Well, stay tuned. Uh, we'll talk more about that. Welcome back in the first of our series on personal finances. I'm joined by financial planning expert with AskPaul.ie, Paul Merriman, to discuss the issue, the thorny issue at that, of health insurance. Um, Paul, when I knew we were going to talk about this tonight, I, I went onto the, the Health Insurance Authority website just to have a look at the number yeah. um, of companies out, out there offering uh, policies. Well, first off, counting the number of VHI, that's just one example, so yeah. you imagine it's across the board. Up to 80 plans VHI alone has. Yeah, there's if actually you take over... every health yeah. insurance provider offering, offering that number of plans, you're talking hundreds yeah, on the market over 300, to choose from. Yeah, over 330, in fact, Claire. So it's, like it's a massive uh, undertaking for someone to go on that hasn't maybe got the experience at the HIA website. Uh, I do think everybody needs advice when it comes to health insurance. I think when you look at the HIA website, you want to have hours and really know not only your own product inside out, your existing plan, but also what you're really looking for. Uh, and there's a few tricks of the trade as well that can make the premium cheaper that people mightn't realise when they're going through the 
website as well. Uh, so that's really what we're here to promote today is talk about why you should be switching and probably why people don't switch and get rid of those yeah. kind of old myths. Big question because we're always told we should shop around mm -hmm. but when we when it comes to health insurance it's pretty daunting isn't it? Yes it is. Um, first off there's that choice that we're talking about and then knowing um, what you're entitled to what you're likely to get and if you will lose out mm -hmm. in fact if you switch health insurance provider. Yeah I think the losing out is a big thing that people really have a fear but one thing I will say is that people automatically think you need to switch provider clearly talking about health insurance you don't so for argument's sake the biggest client bank would obviously be VHI they're there the longest but you don't have to actually move from VHI to another provider you could switch your plan within VHI so I do find a lot of people especially in an older demographic will like VHI they're there years they're comfortable with them they maybe have used them once or twice the claims are very good and they might fear moving to another provider but they can switch within VHI still have should, VHI but have a better plan should they contact VHI themselves and say look I'm not yes. happy with what I'm paying for I don't know if I need all these extra bits and pieces yeah. what can you offer me yeah and as well that's a very good point and actually if you look at somebody that maybe had health insurance for 10, 15 or even 20 years of VHI their circumstances have definitely changed they might need maternity benefits anymore for argument's sake uh, they might be more looking at cardiac stuff they mightn't have children on the plan anymore either so the plan that was 20 years ago is like most likely not going to be suitable for today needs. So that's the big thing is to make sure you switch. There's a couple of rules. If you're an adult and you're paying more than 1,800 euro, you probably need to have a chat about switching and getting the premium down. And if you've never switched or you've never looked at changing your provider or your policy, you need to do it, especially if you're there more than you, 10 years. You say 1,800 euro, but I'm sure there are, there are policies out there that, that are more than that. What oh, yeah. do they offer? Yeah, well, again, so special. it depends. Again, this is all around choice. Uh, so they might, own private, they might offer a private healthcare, for argument's sake, or private rooms in uh, some of the hospitals in Dublin. But if you're living in Cork, you might need that. <laughs> so again, it's really about understanding what your policy is and what you need for a specific moment in time now. Um, so like I said, it, it is a bit of a minefield. I do recommend that everybody gets advice when it comes to health cover. I mean, I don't think a lot of people are going to get onto the HI website, look around and find the best policy for themselves. A few places to go, there's total health healthcover.ie, really, really good place by Dermot Good. There's also the likes of bonkers.ie, switcher.ie, so you can go on, pay a small fee to these guys, and they look at your existing contract and be able to tell you what's out in the marketplace. And I think that's a really good benefit for everybody to do, and I couldn't recommend that enough. Somebody's tweeted to say, considering that procedures were cancelled and so few had claims this year, this year, they're probably referring to last, last year, year as well, it doesn't justify the increase in health insurance. People are being ripped off. What would you say to that? Well, in fairness, the health some of the private hospitals were taken over by the government during the pandemic um, and the health insurance providers refunded premiums to people because they were closed. So I would have to go back to that tweet and say that there was a reconciliation of premiums there and people were paid back last year when those were, they were closed about three months and all. Uh, so yeah, that was kind of looked after. But um, yeah, I mean, look, it's, 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 it's a fair point, I suppose. Uh, but, you know, that's what insurance providers are there for, to make sure you are covered if you do need it. Now talk us through the waiting period. Yeah. So um, where you won't be cover, covered under a new policy for certain illnesses for a period of time. Is yes, that right? this is another big one why people don't switch. They think they need to serve the waiting periods again. So if you're new to health insurance and you're going to get a health insurance product for the first time, you will have to serve waiting periods. Now, they're That's not if for you've accidents. never had health insurance yes, before. Yes, exactly. Yeah, But it's not for accidents or injury. You're going to be covered straight away. Uh, but for illnesses or if you look at the likes of pre-existing conditions, so you have a pre-existing condition, maybe like diabetes for argument's sake, you might have to wait up to five years before they'll cover that 
condition in hospital. Okay. Now, if you've served your five years, let's take it, you're someone who's 35 years of age, you've had it for the last five years since 30, and you want to move again from one provider to another, you don't have to save those waiting periods again. You've so already the, done your time. So those waiting periods are for when you first enter the system exactly. as such, yes. not when you switch yes. up to a different policy now, there's, provider. There's one caveat I will say is if you've cancelled your product or your health insurance product and you've cancelled for more than three months or 13 weeks, you will have to serve them again. So just in case somebody cancelled during the pandemic and they're out more than three months, they will have to serve them going back in again. So it's very important if you have cancelled to make sure you try and jump back in again before that 13 week period so you don't have to serve those again. And if you want to add something onto your health insurance, is that immediate? Say you wanted to add some dental care on and then you want to get a procedure done? Is there no, a waiting time there? No, it's not a really good question. In fact, one of the biggest ones for this is probably for maternity cover that people try to get maternity cover added on as soon as they decide to have children. So most of them are going to have to wait 52 weeks before that will actually kick in as well. Right, so, so yeah. there is that time. There, there is, is that, that little time bit of time you... if you are going to upgrade your policy and you're looking to add something on. Uh, but again, in fairness, that's a fair usage policy. You know, if you hadn't had maternity benefits before and you haven't paid for it um, and you're thinking of going to have a baby, uh, you know, it's, I suppose it's only fair that you have to wait compared to everybody else's All payday. right. Lots of good tips and advice there, Paul, as ever. Thank you for that. That is it from us. My thanks to Paul and, in fact, to all of our guests who appeared on the show tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. But from all the late team here, good night and do take care. is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.